Appalachia is a place, a culture, a way of life, and a home to a diverse and select few. Farming and agriculture are at the heart of this rugged rural land. WEHC is pleased to introduce a new program to our lineup, Living Appalachia, a show dedicated to exploring and answering your questions about all aspects of agrarian life. Here now is your host for Living Appalachia, Brendan Blevins. Hello, you're listening to Living Appalachia. Today I have with me Dwayne McIntyre talking about homesteading in the modern era, Phil Blevins who works in the extension office, Gracie Shepard about barrel racing, rodeo, Corey Gardner, game warden for Washington County, Tater Miller, a local expert on beekeeping, Greg Case, a local cattle farmer, Tim and Tiffany from the Department of Wildlife Resources, mussels and rivers and how that interacts with farming, Dr. Charlie Brodus, state veterinarian, avian influenza, David Gina Plant Industry Services from the Virginia Department of Agriculture, the Spotted Lantern Flight. I'm your host, Brendan Blevins. Today I have Tater with me. He is a tobacco farmer and a local business owner. We will be talking about the struggles involved in farming and the history of tobacco in this region. How did your family get into tobacco? My granddaddy raised his first crop in 1913 pretty sure it was out of necessity and he purchased the uh, farm that we still have to this day. So has tobacco been the main crop there? Um, it was primarily backer as we call it <laughs> and that's the appropriate term. They also kept dairy cattle and milked. Just for a reference point for everyone, how uh, how big is this? Uh, the original farm was 96 acres. Tell me a little bit about tobacco in this region. Backer in this region has been extremely important to the local regional economy. With the terrain that we have in this part of the world, in the southern Appalachians, we're not set up like Midwest grain farmers who can farm thousands upon thousands and thousands of acres of row crops such as corn, soybeans, and etc. And Burley just naturally lent itself to our region because we were made up of small farms and Biker was a high value crop on small acreages that a small farmer could make a living. For those of us that don't know a ton about tobacco, can you take us through the process of everything from planting all the way up into harvest and uh, what that looks like? Biker has been referred to as one of cash crop in the farming community that's a 13-month-a-year job. Um, there's really not much downtime involved in it. You've talked a little bit about the curing process for tobacco and the harvest. Can you explain the harvest? Because from my understanding, it's quite a bit different than, like, harvesting corn or anything else. Yes. <laughs> um, when it comes to the harvest of, of biker, and, and this is talking about burley, um, type 31, there is no mechanization. A biker knife and a spear and a stick. Each plant is individually cut. Each step of that is done by hand. It's hard to get uh, hire people to come harvest it for you. So is it just like you and your family or do farmers get together to harvest? In the past, people would kind of work together and they would go from farm to farm to farm and help each other cut their backer crop and get it into the barn or house it. That has went away a long, long time ago. You would try to pick up help wherever you could People have used high school kids, and uh, migrant labor was a big deal at one time. But now it doesn't seem to matter what you're doing, whether you're putting up hay or raising backer or whatever. Labor is a humongous issue. For the first time in several years, you actually grew tobacco this year because in this region, tobacco has kind of died out. 
What drove you to grow a few more crops this year? Literally, it's literally in your blood. <laughs> and we have a small beekeeping woodenware business. And just outside the shop, have a small raised bed. And I just put out two plants this year. It just seemed like the right thing to do. <laughs> it was actually fun. And it generated a little bit of curiosity for people coming to the shop that have moved in from different areas and are not familiar with it. It also brought some amount of joy to the local people that used to work in it as a child with their family. It just brought back old times for them. You have transitioned out of tobacco on the commercial scale. What made you realize that that might be something that had to happen? It was a number of factors. Input costs were getting extremely out of control. The cost that we were getting from the companies had pretty much stagnated. It was not really going up. One of the bigger issues is labor. What year was the last major crop for you? 2017. I was rather proud of that because, you know, Granddaddy started in 1913. He raised it until he no longer could, and my daddy took over. And he, he did his entire life, and I tried to keep it going. And we finally made it 104 years, so I figured, that's good. We can deal with that. That's a heck of an accomplishment. How many tons do you think would come out of Washington County in the prime of it? Abingdon, the county seat of Washington County, was a tobacco town. And there were several biker markets, and at its peak, and that's biker coming in from around this region, not just Washington County, but at its peak, there was over 20 million pounds of leaf going through the Abingdon markets. And in today's money, that's uh, a little over $40 million. With tobacco being such a big business, what do you think led to its decline? All tobacco, regardless of what type it was, was on a quota system. And each farm, depending on its size, was allocated a quota. And that's what you could raise. And... <sighs> Congress passed what was called the Fair and Equitable Tobacco Act of 2004. And effectively what that done was do away with the quota system and money was used to pay off landowners for their quota. And then after the buyout, it was just the growers dealing directly with the companies. I try to keep up with what's going on in the biker business in this region. And as best I can tell now, in Washington County, we have between two and three growers that are still growing. Is there any hope that you see for something to come along and replace tobacco for a lot of those old farms? Because I know my great-grandparents, and like I said, my grandparents even grew tobacco, and really cattle is the only thing I can think of that have replaced it. Is there anything you see that could be a replacement for that? Really? No. People have been working on it, even at a university level, for a really, really, really long time to try and find something that fit that same niche on small farms, high value. It, it just, it's just not there. Farming's just like a lot of other things. You have to have some diversity with your crops and everything, and that's just simple risk management. Cattle prices may be down, but biker prices may still be doing okay. And you're kind of helping one or the other offset one or the other should you have a bad year for whatever reason. And then once you take one of those away, your, your crop is being put under more pressure to produce a profit. What would you have to say to uh, somebody out there still trying to run their small farm? Don't give up. Just keep going. Just trial and error. Just keep trying stuff. And, you know, people talk of this niche market. 
you know, the niche market is what's in demand, but also a niche in what you like to do and what you're good at. <laughs> so sometimes you just gotta you just gotta try some stuff and see what works. The whole anti-smoking campaign that's been going on for many years now. Uh, what are your thoughts on that as it relates to the tobacco industry? To be perfectly frank, you won. It's over. <laughs> I do want to say something about some of the positives, especially in this area here. And I can speak for my own family. That backer crop was pretty important. It paid a lot of bills. We were able to go to school on account of a backer crop. We were able to eat on account of a backer crop. It was pretty important. And, you know, everybody has their own opinion. And, you know, that's good. But I also want them to see that there's some good, there is some good in backer farming. It's not all evil. At the end of the day, I don't believe any farmer out there is trying to hurt people. They're doing this to provide for their family the best way they can. Yes, and, and to maintain their heritage. Mm -hmm. And it, it is a big part of, uh, of the heritage in this region because I don't believe Virginia would be the state that it is without tobacco. It used to be a sense of great pride to take a load of backer and go to the market. I mean, people could see it going down the road, and you're thinking, you know, he's getting paid here soon. And it was a joyous time. Yeah, because uh, I even remember going back uh, to very early years of my education in history classes. That's the first thing you learn is Virginia became a uh, tobacco state. Oh. That uh, was the cash crop. Backer powerhouse. <laughs> yeah. Known around the world. What are your thoughts on this? I've heard it said that a generation after mine may be the last to really be able to farm in a small way. Do you think there's any truth to that? that mm, no, no. I, I really, I, I think that there's still, there's still room in this world for small farms. Today we will be talking to Jenny Kimmel about permaculture. The term was coined by some Australian gentlemen in the 1970s, and it largely came from Bill Mollison watching Aboriginal people interacting with landscapes and thinking about humans as a part of ecosystems, not as separate from them. And so the, the word permaculture is this conjoining of two words, permanent and culture, and this idea that all culture comes from land and relationship with land. And if we want to have permanent cultures, uh, not ones that destroy themselves, then we have to have sustainable ways of interacting with land and community. My favorite, I think, definition of permaculture is applied common sense from a Japanese farmer, Fukuoka. Just a whole systems design science. So it takes into account not just farming uh, or gardening, but everything like placement of house and where our energy comes from and the way we interact in communities and society at large with nature and with one another. And there's these three basic ethics, care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus to earth and people. What are some of the, the benefits to it compared to uh, like traditional farming? There are many, and I think when I was first captured by permaculture, it was that it was a lifestyle approach. It connects into the kitchen, into our personal lives, our interpersonal lives, into how we give ourselves rest and have systems of like redundancy. So lots of backup. For instance, like in a lot of modern conventional agriculture, you see like monocrop systems. So just one thing planted in the field, and that makes those things very susceptible to disease or to drought and to losing entire crops. So when you build redundancy into a system, you reduce the need for 
things like chemical fertilizers, you increase soil health, you have like a diverse community of things all supporting one another. Like a really classic example would be like three sisters plantings with corn and uh, beans and squash, right? So they're all providing functions for one another. So they all are working in this like reciprocity. Uh, And I think that's interesting just for humans too, because things generally work better when we when we help help each other and we work uh, in community with one another. So So you mentioned you live uh, in an off-the-grid home. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I built a little cottage, I guess you could say. It's kind of like a tiny house. I have solar panels. I try as much as possible to limit the energy intake that I need, um, which has been an interesting adventure for like five years. I lived in a teepee on the farm with no running water and electricity. It's very quiet and very rural, um, and it requires a lot of self-sufficiency. I think a lot of times, like living off-grid or homesteading or agriculture in general can get romanticized, and there are a lot of very romantic things about this lifestyle, and it's also a lot of hard work. And a lot of chopping wood and, yeah, doing things differently. As far as homesteading, permaculture seems like the the way to go. What can you kind of grow with uh, permaculture? That's kind of the sky's the limit. I like being knowledgeable about the wild foods all around us. So, like, right now I'm not really actively trying to grow them, but there's lots of uh, field garlic. All your annual vegetables, I've got pawpaws in the woods kind of around my home um, that I planted, and then I love going out foraging for pawpaws in the fall. You know, dandelions are coming up, and that's great medicine and tea, um, chicory. I have bees um, that provide honey, but really also just do a lot of pollination in the garden. There's a heavy emphasis kind of on perennials, so lots of fruit and nut trees, things that will come back year after year. As far as, uh, like, foraging, can you tell us, like, how you got into that? Because I know... A lot of people who want to get into that but are kind of worried they'll uh, they'll pick the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, mushrooms are something you have to be fairly careful with, but there are also a lot of easily identifiable mushrooms. For me personally, I learned a lot about gardening and just general plant knowledge and ID, spending a lot of time in the woods growing up here, but then also as a young woman, getting familiar with different kinds of leaves and trees and uh, once you gain a certain level of like confidence and also this like intimacy with the natural world you know what you're looking at uh, you know what you're smelling (laughs) you know what you're tasting but I would just recommend starting out with very basic things that are really easy to identify and that don't have a lot of poisonous lookalikes and there's lots of great classes on foraging. I teach a, a permaculture design certification course And we talk about animal uh, management as well. So silva pasture is one thing that's uh, definitely done on the farm. And for everyone that's listening that doesn't really know what that is, it's just grazing livestock into trees. And so it's actually a tradition in this region, in the Appalachian region. Started out very early on with pigs uh, originally in this region, but a lot of people still to this day do it and don't really realize there's a name for it and there's a way you can do it very sustainably. I think a lot of people think that if you're going to raise livestock, you just need to clear cut it and seed it with grass and kind of just let them loose on that and then feed hay. But I have noticed a lot of people also unintentionally have kind of gotten into silva pasture, which I think is great. 
Yeah, that's why I think I like that applied common sense definition for permaculture. You know, you think about the animals and what their needs are. Um, sure, up there, you know, needing shelter from high winds and cold and snow, like, that's one thing. Like, windbreaks, they're like a basic common sense thing for animals, but also in the heat of the summer, needing shade to escape from the heat, just like we would as humans, right? It kind of folds into that idea of redundancy in your system. You can have the added benefit of, you know, harvesting fruit or nut um, or lumber from those trees. That's kind of a win, win, win for everybody. The cows win, you win, the pastures win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the great thing about permaculture is it can be practiced really anywhere. You can start, you know, with the tiniest of containers and work your way up from there. Learning about it from doing it, I would say, is most effective. And I learned a lot from practicing with people who who taught me most of what I know about permaculture. So for me, reading it in a book isn't as effective <laughs> as working side by side with somebody. So I'd say find somebody and start start some garden adventures. <laughs> it kind of seems like this was the original agriculture, like the original way humans went about things. What do you think happened I mean, if you go drive through the Midwest, you kind of just see rows and rows of corn and things like that. Why don't you think uh, some of these bigger farms aren't growing like that? Well, I mean, I think it's one of the largest reasons is that, you know, humans started to see themselves as separate from these ecosystems when we're really not. We're a part of them. And I think seeing ourselves not as destructive forces in nature, but in partnering with nature is where we can really find a tremendous amount of abundance and resilience as well. And I I think we just started to separate things, you know, to put them sort of in boxes and to separate ourselves. Uh, And then, you know, just the desire for productivity, I'm sure, and profit, you know, led to uh, I, I couldn't, I don't know that I can specifically speak to that, but I know one thing I like about permaculture is that it really encourages us to see ourselves as part of rather than separate from. Uh, possible for some of these larger farms to switch over to permaculture since it has so many benefits? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, you know, it really depends on the kind of operation. There are definitely large farms in the United States that incorporate these permaculture principles, largely things like silvopasture and large uh, rotation, like animal rotation systems, and incorporating perennial tree crops into those. Um, And then I think just thinking differently about the way that we source food. So what would it look like if we had perennial systems with trees that are helping, you know, take carbon from the atmosphere, providing stability um, to soil, producing more fertility through um, the fact that they, they drop their leaves every year, also like high-quality lumber, and what would happen then if we didn't have to spray those things with pesticides? And what are we not thinking of that we could be doing where we could still be making a profit and we could be tending to the land and society simultaneously? I think permaculture can definitely be incorporated in terms of like soil health, and um, insect control, pest control, bringing in beneficial bugs. I think there are many ways to interweave permaculture systems into larger scale systems with uh, enough desire and knowledge. Really, it works at all these different angles um, to make sure that everything is nourishing everything else um, and that you're constantly giving back. But I think one of the things that we're finding with modern um, you know, conventional agriculture is that it, it takes, but it doesn't necessarily replenish. And I do think that is starting to change. 
What advice do you have for somebody who's just gotten really fired up from this interview and just wants to dive right into uh, to permaculture this spring? You know, a great first place to start is that look up uh, look up sheet mulching. If you don't have access to a tiller and find out what it's about, just experiment and don't be afraid to fail and to learn and to try new things. And today I have with me Shane Blevins. He's also my dad. We're going to be focusing mainly on uh, on the family farm today. The origination of it started about 99 years ago. We're in Smith County, as you know. My grandparents bought the farm. It wasn't a farm then. There was timber all over it. Throughout the years, my grandfather cleared the timber. They built a house, and it wasn't built by any contractor out here. It was it was a family venture. My grandparents, you know, farmed. Uh, it was a, a part-time, like many small family farms are, because uh, our farm's about 75 acres, so it's it's a nice plot of land, uh, but it's not comparable to some of those farms that you, you know and, and hear about in other locations where they're farming thousands of acres. They worked other jobs. Farming was on the side because it's difficult to, to make a living to raise four kids. And everybody kind of had their chore list before all of the children went to school and my grandparents went to work, and then you start that all over when everybody gets home. I think I got the work ethic because because as, as a young child, I enjoyed going out there and, you know, working in the garden. My fondest memories in the heat of the summer when you're out there throwing those square bales of hay, you know, onto the wagon and in the back of the pickup trucks. And then, you know, you got to get them up in the loft. There's nothing like tossing that hay. Uh, you don't have to lift weights when you do things like that, <laughs> along with everything that you're farming. And you get all of the, the dust and the seeds and everything all over you because you're sweating. Then after you finish that... You go down to the swimming hole and jump in in that cool mountain water. There's no feeling like that. I've also heard some stories from you and uh, and my grandmother about there used to be uh, draft horses. And I think of that valley as being almost 20 years behind the modern world. And back in the day, probably closer to 50. <laughs> uh, during my lifetime, my grandfather never had draft horses, uh, but I've seen many pictures. Uh, we found a few things from the draft horses. You know, we've got a, a couple horseshoes sitting on our mantle right now yeah. that came from there. They're rusted, well used, uh, but stuff like that's a prized possession that, you know, it's the history of the farm. Mm -hmm. And it really makes you appreciate having a tractor nowadays. <laughs> You know, it snows pretty good sometimes over across the mountain, mm -hmm. but you've still got to feed the cattle. And I remember many of a day riding that from the barn with the little wagon behind us going up and taking the cattle feed in the snow. And, you know, you think about nowadays and, and the tractor that we have, and it's got a cab and it's four-wheel drive, and you can take that thing places that you probably shouldn't even be taking a tractor. And it's got that AC and heating in it, right? And yeah, it does. <laughs> and, and, and the windows you can crack open. And uh, I've discovered that the radio that's in there, you can hook up to Bluetooth and play everything from your phone and stuff too it's uh it seems it's like a different style seems like cheating nowadays it, to, it is <laughs> farms around here tend to be a little bit smaller than some farms in other places and i think that's a lot to do with the terrain in this area because i mean uh 
the farm's on the side of a mountain. <laughs> right. Here, of course, the terrain is much different, a little more difficult to manage because you can get into some pretty big, you know, ravines and, and going through the mountain land here that wouldn't be necessarily tillable property. You could probably have some livestock that could traverse around that. Uh, but oftentimes the cost as far as getting the property or the cost to manage that uh, is, is just not something that's doable for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you look through a lot of the old family pictures from way back when, and, and you can clearly see uh, the progression. You know, honestly, it's pretty incredible when you think about just a few people doing that. It brings an appreciation. And, you know, you've been involved in, in some hard work over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, each generation, I think, has it a little bit better. So if you if you look back to two generations from you, you know, your grandmother and, and her siblings, uh, they had it a lot rougher than the, the generations today uh, because, one, there was work to be done. But, two, th- if they were lucky, they got three channels. <laughs> so you didn't, you didn't have everything that you have nowadays. And, you know, you think about that – those were probably the good old days that we can talk about because you didn't have all of the distractions. You know, mm-hmm. it was family time, whether it's working, you know, or whether you're eating a meal together or whatever. It was it was family time. You have served in the military for uh, 25 years. Yep. So moving away from this area for that long, I mean, you came back and you'd visit and do that sort of thing. But what were your thoughts on being away from this area? Growing up here, you know, really instilled a lot in me from, you know, the integrity and hard work and things of that sort. Uh, but I knew I had to, I had to go do something else. I mm-hmm. uh, wasn't really sure what that something else was, uh, but you look around and you know that you can't sustain yourself and raise a family uh, just on farm life here. Many people have to, you know, just like my grandparents, go get some other type of employment and they farm on the side. And, you know, unfortunately, within this this region, uh, there's not always a lot of opportunities for any type of career. And all of a sudden, you fast forward. And, uh, you know, I'm in the military and in the Air Force, and I'm retirement eligible. And I'm like, where did all of the time go? How has, uh, how has the area changed? Well, it's actually changed quite a bit. Uh, and I think it's just part of the, the generational and, and societal changes that occur. A lot of the old timers, uh, they're no longer in that area. You know, now you have a, a new set of old timers. You know, the next thing you know, I'm going to be one of those old timers. Uh, so it's it's funny how life takes you down those those turns. A lot of, of my peer group, uh, there's not many of them left there. You know, and of course, the, the terrain. Sometimes you see the, the change in the terrain. Uh, like we saw when, when we first were able to buy my grandparents' farm, is it hadn't been worked in, in many years. And so if you don't have some type of livestock or you don't have someone out there, you know, with, with a bush hog ensuring everything's done and uh, the train changes, you know, things grow up pretty fast mm-hmm. uh, and it, it becomes unusable. It seems like there's just not as many farms as there once was um, back there. And a lot of farms have, you know, either turned into developments or uh, have just kind of stopped producing whatever they were. I mean, even today, I think we talked about the uh, Apple Festival in Chilhowee, how, you know, there used to be all these orchards around there, and there's just not, not anymore. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's very unfortunate. 
And and I think part of it is not only some of the people that my age and, well, heck, even younger, moving away, they don't come back and do that or they're not interested. Uh, but I also think there's a bigger piece to, to not having as many farms. So the majority of the farms, uh, you know, are much smaller and not uh, in a place where someone would be able to, to make that a full-time career. And a lot of people... Uh, are focused on, on, okay, well, this is quick money. Sell this and build a subdivision. I can get, you know, however much money, and then I don't have to worry about all of the hard labor. But I think the bigger piece, uh, you look at some of the regulations that have been imposed on the farmers. You have to study that uh, and ensure that you're making wise decisions when, when you go to a polling place every November. Mm-hmm. We've lived all over the place. And one thing I've noticed that's huge back here is a uh, History is just a big part of stuff back here, and people care about it a lot more, like your family history especially. Yeah, and uh, and that's one of the, the trademarks, I think, from, you know, the Appalachian region. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's traditional that the families help each other out, uh, and that's that's their way of life, and, and it's a good way of life. You've got to really rely on your neighbors and stuff, because when you think about it, where, where our farm is, it's about 45 minutes to a hospital. <laughs> I think uh, farming in this region is a little bit more dangerous than some uh, some other areas. I'm not trying to say it's safe anywhere, but... <laughs> well, and that's a very good point, and it goes back to, to the terrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and sometimes maybe the equipment. You hear the, the Appalachian way of living you don't go buy something if you don't have to. You exactly. fix it yourself. Uh, and so there's a number of, of injuries on a farm that occur every year uh, because somebody's fixing something, uh, just some some freak accident occurs. So getting back to the farm, what would you you know like to do in the future with it or what would you like to see done with it? There's many things that can be done. A, a lot goes into planning the future. I, I know that's a million-dollar question when it comes to farming especially. You know, what exactly are you going to do in the future? <laughs> right. And I, one thing's for certain, though, I'm going to keep you and your brother gainfully employed. So, you know, the hard work <laughs> that we talked about early on in this, we'll make sure that don't go away and keeps you in good physical shape. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Well, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed having you on the show, especially the last show before I graduate. <laughs> yeah, no, I've enjoyed it too, and, and I appreciate the opportunity. It's been my honor, and I'm glad I could be here and, and do this with your last show prior to, to sitting in the uh, at the football field tomorrow and watching you graduate. <laughs> thank you, and thank you to all the listeners for listening to Livin' Appalachia on WEHC 90.7 and WISE FM WISE 90.5. Hey folks, this is Kenneth Barrier reminding you that you're listening to the voice of Southwest Virginia. W-E-H-C-N-